0: Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast.
1: The head of the World Bank is warning that climate change will lead to violent conflict over shortages of food and water. Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel said Monday that rising sea levels and other effects of climate change will pose major challenges for hey Everyone,
0: this is America Adapts, a climate change podcast. On today's episode, we have Rebecca Esselman with the Huron River Watershed Council, and we'll be talking about adapting in watersheds. Please consider subscribing to the podcast on iTunes and also follow us on Facebook at America Adapts. Thanks. So I hope you enjoy amazing. the episode. Today, there is no greater threat to our planet than climate change. The world is looking to the United States, to us, to lead.
1: This is the only planet we've got.
0: Hi, everyone. This is Doug Parsons with America Adapts, the climate change podcast. On today's podcast, I have Rebecca Esselman, a watershed planner with the Huron River Watershed Council. Hey, Rebecca, how's it going?
1: Hi, Doug. Well,
0: well, listen, I said watershed planner because I got that from your website, but you also are calling yourself an adaptation coordinator. Is Which one do you kind of refer to yourself in public?
1: Watershed planner um, is sort of an umbrella title, but and there's several of us watershed planners on staff here at the Watershed Council, but we all have a different area of focus, and climate is one of mine.
0: Well, Rebecca, just so people know, Rebecca and I go way back from our days at the University of Georgia Institute of Ecology, which is now the School of Ecology, and she married one of her fellow ecology folks, Peter Esselman. So, yeah. Thanks for coming on, though, Rebecca.
1: Sure, you're welcome. Yeah, that's right. We uh, a lot got started those years at Georgia.
0: Those were great years, but best two and a half <laughs> years of my life. Intelligent people, cool people that I'm still in touch with today. So, hey. So when I do these podcasts, I'm here on my laptop, and sometimes it's a little difficult to keep your concentration and avoid things. And so what they say to do is actually to look at a photo. And so I have a photo of you staring at me right now with a big smile, and you've got a giant glass of either beer or wine. And I, I'm sure you know what photo I'm talking about, right? It's a <laughs> it's, it's a recent one.
1: It's neither beer nor wine, Doug. <laughs> oh, okay. What is it? Uh, that is cider. That's hard cider. Cider. And oh. it's... Yeah, it's actually made by this act. This this question actually has a climate connection. You want to hear it? Yes. That cider is made by Tandem Ciders, which is local, which is located up in Suttons Bay, um, Traverse City area of Michigan, which is our apple growing region. And my uh, closest friend from undergraduate is the extension agent there, helps them with pest management on the fruit trees and everything. And I don't know this this story definitely made nas- national news, but uh, maybe four years ago now, uh, we had an early onset spring and then more seasonally appropriate freezes that, um, and we lost our entire uh, apple crop that year in Michigan oh, wow. because of uh, unseasonably early spring. So uh, that's something that she thinks about in her day to day very intimately, is how to adapt our um, orchard industry, both cherry and apple, to uh, changing climate.
0: So if it's a wash on the crop, I mean, she wasn't able to grow anything, so it's it, there's nothing. So You could even make alcohol out of this, like <laughs> bad crop <laughs> that, of apples.
1: That was a bad year, and, um, and it wasn't just her, it was the entire region. Um, and when you, I think that orchard farmers among all different types of farming are some of the most vulnerable because uh, so much relies on that single crop and it's, it's hard to recover from financially.
0: So that you said this about three four years ago?
1: Yeah yeah it was actually at, me, at the beginning of my time with the Watershed Council which was when I really started paying attention to climate.
0: You know I remember that spring I, I'm here in DC and we were there and I was just dazzled by some of the record-breaking heat that some of those places, like in Michigan and Minnesota, their low temperature of the day actually broke their all-time record temperature. Like, you know, if it was like the low was seventy-four, and that was actually their highest all-time temperature for that day. I mean, there were just some dazzling numbers. I remember that heat wave. It was, and I guess that's the one you're talking about.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, sounds about right.
0: Well, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Your rel- I mean, you're not. That new, but you've been with the, the council about three or four years. But what were you doing before that?
1: Uh, before that, I started my career at the Nature Conservancy. My, the time we shared together in Georgia, uh, the Institute of Ecology was very water-focused. And my education was heavy in, in watershed ecology. And I went on to work for the Nature Conservancy, doing some work on how to... At that time, freshwater conservation was in its infancy and specifically planning for freshwater conservation. So I was a part of a team of people that developed guidance on how to do freshwater conservation among an audience of practitioners that were really terrestrial-focused historically. And then for the majority of my time with the Nature Conservancy, I was engaged in a lot of conservation planning. How do we protect our freshwater systems? What strategies make sense in different places? And how do we get that stuff done? And then about four years ago, leading into that, I really wanted to get more local. I'm a born and raised in Michigan, and I've always felt like the place that you can affect the most change is the place where you intimately know your neighbors and you know their life experience and you have a shared value for the natural resources. And so I wanted to work locally and landed this position at the Watershed Council four years ago and have been enjoying it ever since. It's the river that runs through my backyard that, that we're doing work on on a day-to-day basis.
0: Well, you Midwesterners are very loyal, and we appreciate it. And so you've set up your family there. You you, you do your job, and you have three kids, and I think their age is two months, three months, and four months. It's just something r- r- ridiculous <laughs> <That's right. laughs> how you manage to handle it all. I don't know how you do it, but, yeah, there you are in Michigan. And I, I actually – I know Rebecca's husband's Peter, and I used to give him a hard time in grad school, but yeah. You're with the Huron River, and I know nothing about this river. I've dug around, and I've looked at literally where it's at, and so when I think of Midwestern rivers, especially urban rivers, I'm thinking rivers on fire and polluted and the Flint River, but I wanted to let you give us – kind of walk us through, I mean – is it a beautiful river? I mean, is there still a lot of natural areas on it? Just like, let, let listeners know what the Huron River is all about.
1: Yeah, the the Huron River is a little gem in southeast Michigan, which is it's a lot of the Detroit metropolitan area. So it's highly urbanized. And that's what the, the downstream reaches of our watershed look like. But the majority of our watershed area is in this very hilly topography. It was terrible for farming. So there's a lot of forest still. And we have this very intact river system considering how developed the area is around it. So it's highly prized for recreation. People come out to our river and paddle and swim and fish. We have Natural Rivers District designation which is a state level designation that helps these rivers stay natural by kind of governing the riparian area so you you can't build super close to the river itself in order to to protect it and allow users of the river to have a more natural experience so we have that going for us and actually just last year we received a na- national water trail designation from the park service i think we're the 17th or 18th river that's received that designation wow. nation so yeah Congrats. it's really a gem mm-hmm.
0: my wife is from cleveland and so there's a love-hate relationship with the cuyahoga river but the the sense is like people of detroit i mean they think about the huron river in a positive way there's not like oh that old dumpy river i mean people love the river Is that sort of what's going on there
1: yeah i would think that's the case for for people that that pay attention to rivers, which is, a, you know, anyone that fishes or recreates, they um, even are joggers and cyclists. We There's a lot of people using the river in a lot of different ways. In Michigan, a lot of the focus tends to be on our Great Lakes because we have these amazing freshwater resources. But anyone who looks inland um, values the, the Huron.
0: Well, that's good to hear. I went to one of your maps and it had sort of canoe trails and it seemed like literally the entire length of the river. Okay, here's another spot to put the canoes in. So I guess people are using it.
1: Yeah, well, and we've actually been, that's, a, that's an area of work the Watershed Council has been undertaking is river recreation and people getting to the river and enjoying it fosters a, an ethic. We've really worked on making our river accessible and getting people to it as a strategy to you know creating the values necessary to for people to take actions to protect the river.
0: Well you and I caught back up with each other at the National Adaptation Forum and, you know, you're doing climate change adaptation and that's why I wanted to have you on the podcast today. And what is the Huron River Watershed Council? You know, i it, it seems like it, it's not an advocacy group. You guys are you, you, you're partner driven, you do a lot of volunteer work, but you're not quite a water management district. I mean you are a private NGO, right?
1: We are an NGO. Actually, so we have a, it's an interesting answer because we have a 50-year history and we started as a council of governments. So 50 years ago, the communities of the Huron recognized that water moves across jurisdictional boundaries, (laughs) shocking, and that, you know, that, that they needed an entity to help coordinate management of this resource. And so the Watershed Council was born as a council of governments. And to this day, we still have a board that has representation from every single one of our municipalities, or at least potential representation. Not every muni has assigned a a board member, but we have a very large board. Governments still pay dues to the Watershed Council to provide services that that manage the resources, a shared resource as it is.
0: Well, so that is sort of a unique model that you, you have that government representation and yet your organization's independent. So you're not Greenpeace. You're, you're doing more practical things on the ground.
1: We do very practical things. Yes.
0: Okay. Well, you know, I, again, I was looking through your website and what I love about it is that all the different things that you guys do. And so on your homepage, you know, there's like a news feed, and on one of the, Announcements is like U.S. needs smarter disaster planning. Then it talks about climate change and resilience. And then the very next one is Ann Arbor trying to curb alcohol parking problems at popular <laughs> tubing spots. <laughs> 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 but that's useful information, you know. Someone's going to it's want...
1: all relevant. It's... Right.
0: Someone's going to go to your website, and that's more relevant than like some fancy new climate report just came out from the National Climate Assessment. You know, you still want to share that. But, I mean, that's the diversity of news and information you're providing is is really quite dazzling. So, yeah, I love those two headlines right next to each other.
1: (laughs) That's actually a blog that I contribute monthly. and, And what we do is gather headlines from the news that month that are that we think are particularly interesting to us and we think our constituents might be interested in hearing about. So, yeah, it runs the gamut um, from things we would like people to be reading more about and understanding the connection. Climate change falls into that. And then, you know, <laughs> that River Recreation headline is – you know, it it really affects people and we have these issues. So I mentioned bringing people to the river as a strategy to, you know, to create an ethic, but not everybody plays that game. And and we're also challenged by beer bottles and coolers ending up in the bottom of the river. And so at the same time, we're having to, um, to (laughs) encourage folks to, to, to be good stewards.
0: Well, if you can break into the Tuber demographic and then (laughs) – get that climate change message. There are a ton of groups that would just love to learn how you did it. So I, at least you're set up. I'll
1: let you know. I'll let you know when I crack that
0: nut. All right. Well, you, at least you're, you're thinking about that nut as opposed to some groups are not. So you are the watershed planner, but again, you do adaptation and climate change planning for the organization. Are you the only, are you like the main person at your organization or were you the first person doing it? What's the history there?
1: both yeah so in 2009 i think the watershed council created an entire we produce a quarterly newsletter and they produced an entire newsletter on how climate change is impacting the huron and this was in response to a growing uh, number of questions coming from our constituents about what it means you know is that climate change is this climate change is it in- impacting us how should we change what we're doing because of this uh, so there were growing volume of questions and the watershed council saw an opportunity to provide the answers and so <clears throat> they decided to add a full-time staff person to do this and and i was brought in at that point so that was um 2012.
0: So, so was it tied to any particular grant funding or anything? Was it a foundation or were there governments interested in funding
1: it? Uh, th- we There were a couple of grants already in place when I came in. One was actually a mitigation project, but the primary project I was brought in to, to carry out was what we call Climate Resilient Communities. And would you like to hear a little bit about the project?
0: I do, but let I, I've, I've got that. You know, we're going to prompt that later, okay? We're going okay. to talk a little bit more. It's more about just sort of how you were, were brought into this organization, and I'm, I think it's just probably very helpful for other groups that are thinking they're doing conservation work, they're doing water planning work, but what does it mean to really bring in a climate change person? So whatever you know, the history yeah, well, of
1: you. yeah. So let me let me uh, back on your question about funding, though. Something kind of interesting about uh, how I was brought in. The the Climate Resilient Communities project was several contributions from small family foundations locally based. So this wasn't a big, you know, Kresge or large foundation grant. It was um, contributions or acknowledgement a bunch of, among a bunch of small family foundations that allowed us to kind of launch our climate program.
0: I mean, I guess that's encouraging that you have that sort of local support to, to do such a thing. And your organization is probably a safer vehicle than maybe a traditional conservation group. So that, that's good.
1: Yeah, it definitely allowed us to get started. And, um, you know, we've been building from there. I think that it was helpful in that it helped us establish a track record of success that made our organization more qualified for funding from uh, larger foundations and, and other competitions.
0: Sometimes organizations, even um, environmental ones, can be somewhat conservative. So when you came on, did your co-workers talk to you? Would they sit with you at lunch? You are the new climate change person. <laughs> and, and you laugh, but when I was at Florida doing similar things, I mean, there was – Outright hostile. I mean, people would sit with me, but like the hostility to the concept that you would be even doing the climate change work. So uh, was there any sort of cultural thing or everyone was sort of on board?
1: No, we're we're a small, we're a 13-person organization. Decisions here are often made by consensus, and so I think everybody was on board with this being a new program for the organization, and so it was a very uh, welcoming and helpful environment to walk into. Even among the partners and participants that I'm working with that came from uh, governments and uh, other organizations were uh, quite receptive to me and my role.
0: Right, well, that's good. You weren't bullied by the uh, the development person or anything. Um, no. Nope. That's encouraging. So at, are- at
1: worst, they stay quiet, and at best, they're quite friendly.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> Read between the lines. Um, mm-hmm. Is there any other significant watershed in Michigan doing the kind of work that you're doing, or are you kind of one of the first groups
1: doing it? That's a good question. I don't I don't think there's, in Michigan, I don't believe there's a lot of climate adaptation work going on within watershed councils. There's only a few other real large, larger watershed councils. Watershed councils are typically, you know, one to three or four staff people. <laughs> we have the tip of the mid-up in Traverse City and uh, a couple of others that are more significant in size. And uh, each of them has taken on some climate work but I do not think they've invested in a full-time climate hire.
0: Well, again, I think that what you guys do probably would be a useful model, and I hope you guys get the word out. You know, Some of the groups that you probably interact with is like American Rivers and all these larger national groups that are trying to encourage more climate work, but when it comes down to it, you have watershed groups that just don't have the capacity or they don't feel like they just can do adaptation work yet. So I think that is a, a great development that you guys are doing it.
1: I hope so. In in particular, for water resources, it's really the scale that makes the most sense to do um, adaptation for the resource itself. We also engage in in um, adaptation work for the built environment, which you know, doing that on a city or town by town basis. Um, can work. Although, of course, um, getting multiple communities within a watershed, engaging in smarter stormwater practices or something like that, for example, is going to lead to larger benefits than any one of them doing it alone.
0: Well, so you have like a communication person on staff and a development person on staff? We do. What's your inner, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of digging into this. I mean, do do you feel like they have a good sense of what you do? Because it's their job to raise money. It's their job to share what the organization is doing have they figured out what you're doing and are they able to pitch it to the public in a useful way or is that on you? How does that work?
1: It's a little bit of both. Uh, you know, in a small organization we all wear a lot of hats and and actually in my role at the Nature Conservancy I did a lot of communications work and information sharing and so it's not a foreign idea to me to, to think about how to, to communicate climate information and so I do a little bit of it. Our marketing uh, group there's there's two staff people there that that work with me as well. And then for development, a lot of the fundraising is uh, completed by myself and my colleagues, other watershed planners that are really conceptualizing the projects and um, you know writing them up and shopping them to appropriate funding sources. Right. But you know they they get it to the level that they need to and we have this very easy back and forth that allows us to work well together and me to benefit from what they know and them to understand what 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 does need to be communicated and help figure out how to do that most effectively.
0: Well, as an emerging topic, you would hope some of the marketing people would see it as a opportunity to do something a little bit different, kind of exciting work. So.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and they don't, you know, what's nice, too, is that nobody shies away from me talking about it. <laughs> so <laughs> one thing, when I, when I started this position, I would regularly talk to the executive director and say, is it okay that I just kind of put this out there like climate change is happening and we're doing these things about it? and or or should it be more cryptic or subtle or you know find different ways to talk about the same thing and she said absolutely not put it out there we're operating under this assumption we're starting from there and if you're not there yet you don't have to read it (laughs) but we weren't going you know she really encouraged me to to speak uh, genuinely about the topic and very in a very forthcoming way Uh, so that's where we started
0: well that having that sort of support at the very top that is key so yeah that's great to hear well you mentioned funding and i sort of want to pivot now to some of these other things these projects that you're doing and maybe the one that you mentioned but you got some money from the wildlife conservation society through their um, adaptation fund is that the project that you're talking about
1: that's one of them that's not the climate resilient communities project but
0: well let's start with the resilience project let's just give us some background on that
1: Okay. This was the one that was funded a lot by um, Small Family Foundations. Mott was also a contributor. And this project uh, spanned three years. And what we did was we engaged deeply with a small number of practitioners over the course of three years, organized by sector. So we had a group of folks focused on stream flows, was hydrologists and dam operators, dam managers. We had a group that was focused on uh, stormwater. And then we had a third group uh, focused on natural resources, particularly riparian forests and wetlands. And we actually put them in a room with climate scientists. So we had the practitioners and we had the climate scientists in the room and we facilitated discussions that allowed those two parties to um, come up with the most useful information for that sector that helped them move their practice in the direction of different climate future. So there was a whole lot of coming to that happened in those discussions because practitioners want very specific information and climate science um, can't provide it at this local of a scale. But ultimately, Over the course of the conversations, we were able to get to very actionable information for these practitioners, give them something that they could really say, all right, I can change my management based on that number or these ideas or these trends. And that was really the goal. So we spent the first year getting to that actionable information. And then we spent the next two years implementing what they felt were priority strategies to build adaptation, climate adaptation into their practice.
0: Well, since adaptation is such an emerging issue, like you have these teams and these groups, you are a policy and uh, expert. I mean, would that how you describe yourself? You're not necessarily a a scientist, right? You're not uh, you. Would you consider yourself a staff scientist?
1: (laughs) Uh, Maybe a jack of all trades at this point. Uh, I definitely, you know, my education is in the science. My career is in the practice. I've actually gotten far more into policy in my current position than I ever had before in my no. career.
0: Okay, go on. No, it's good, it's <laughs> no, good. It's, it's the way good. it's the way
1: things get right. done, you know. So uh you know, working at the watershed scale, you use every and all tools in your toolbox to change, you know, to to achieve river protection. And so that may be policy, it may be behavior, uh it may be, you know, planning and development. There's all sorts of ways that we go at it.
0: Well, not implying that you're not an expert in, in the topic. It was more about this process and you have these teams. And so you bring in, I guess, specific ex- experts who represent these different area, these teams that you're working with. But would you say that you had on staff, because, you know, with adaptation, you know, a vulnerability assessment is sort of a, a new emerging tool when you're doing adaptation planning. And so did you have to invite outside people in or did you feel that all the expertise that you really had? had was was going to be enough
1: you know with this project it was interesting we didn't start with planning at all there was no vulnerability assessment we relied on the instincts of the people that have been doing this work for a very long time they know how climate impacts their community their business practices and they're able to tell us with a lot of accuracy in a lot less time <laughs> <laughs> What's important and what's a priority, and what they think they can get done. So uh, we really started there.
0: I think a lot of people are probably approaching that way. You based on the the expertise that you currently have and just, you know, you can tap into some existing tools. But I think any of that process is actually helpful to learn about how individual areas do it. So you've probably written reports out of this, but I don't know if you've done much in the way of outreach. But if you haven't, I would just encourage you, I think what you just described as you go through that process, especially kind of taking advantage of your own expertise, um, people actually would benefit just from a step-by-step like explanation of that process?
1: Yeah, you know, I definitely put communication high on my to-do list when it comes to any of these projects. We've, I think I've presented this project um, at least at one national conference. Uh, I presented at the first national adaptation forum on this project. It was still a young project at that time. I think I could speak about it at a whole other level of, you know, reflection at this point, Um, but then also local conferences trying to get, um, we really, now that we have this, you know, what I'm calling actionable climate information developed by practitioners within a sector, now we really need to propagate that information uh, throughout the sector so that it's not just, you know, half dozen to a dozen people that have this information in their hands. It's, It's the entire sector.
0: Okay, so you guys came together and you came up with these lists of actions, but do you feel like you're well into the implementation phase? Could you point and say, you know what, we're doing these things on the ground. Is that Are you there?
1: Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: All right, give me a couple examples. Like, is it just restoration work or?
1: No, so our stormwater management group, for example, I don't know how much you know about how stormwater management goes down, but they have the, the systems are designed Uh, based on precipitation data that was developed more than 30 years ago. And that has been the standard for, you know, what's the 100 year storm <clears throat> what's the 10 year storm and you know, what are the recurrence intervals and volumes that are typical of this area that we have to plan for 30 years old <laughs> wow and at the same time we've we've watched you know trends emerge from historical climate data historical rainfall data so this isn't even projecting out but just looking at our you know current rainfall records we know that we've seen increasing volumes and more extreme rain events and so the the goal of that team was to really get the whole field working with at least contemporary data if not incorporating some margin of error for uh, increases in the future and so NOAA at the same time conveniently was revising was going through a big national effort to revise precipitation frequency data and they were doing so for our area so we provided a lot of data and review to NOAA and then we took, once they released the new rainfall definitions, we worked to get that information to be the new standard for stormwater system design. And there were dramatic increases in storm size across the board hmm. with the revision of the, of the precipitation data. So it was this real um, obvious need among stormwater practitioners to at least get up to speed with where, you know, rainfall is now.
0: Well, you know, some of that's not sexy work, but, I mean, that's just the guts of a lot of planning tools out there and, you know, the update of information and such. And so, yeah, that's
1: that's very interesting. So we've since had, uh, once we got all that information together and packaged it up in what we hoped is a compelling way, we started sharing this across our communities and Washtenaw County the county it's one of the four counties um, in the Huron, was undergoing a revision of their stormwater rules, and they adopted the, the new data. So uh, right there, we've got a whole county with new infiltration and detention standards that reflect current precipitation patterns. Uh, Wayne County which is in the Detroit area and part of the Huron, is um, in the process of doing the same. And so we've had some real policy changes that have taken place in response to uh, the work that that got started with these teams.
0: So in this work, though, you are kind of talking about future projections, though, right? We are. So is there any pushback? I mean, you're like, okay, 2050, 2075. I mean, does it get like that? I mean, these are some areas that, uh, you know, some people today really don't, they're not comfortable doing, even if they aren't skeptics?
1: The, there was considerable pushback.
0: Okay. Uh, <laughs> Tell mo- us about it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Just mostly because it's very hard to kind of upsell the decision makers that hold the budgets, right? So mm-hmm. and if you can show that historic trends have, you know, larger storms and larger rain volumes that we have to handle, that's... That's clear and easier to, to digest. But if you start speculating on a future that's unknown, they're hesitant to, you know, literally add a zero to their projects to in anticipation of that less certain future. So while that may be the ideal, there's real challenges to get people thinking that far forward and acting in a way, that that reflects a likely but uncertain future.
0: Yes, I imagine. I think, what, would you say, though, the project's successful, though? I mean, is it an ongoing project and it's sort of supposed to keep living on? Is that how you would describe it? Or is it sort of like you're going to end it and you've, you've set things in motion? I mean, what what's happening next?
1: So we're continuing to pursue the strategies that came out of these working groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that part of it lives on the teams are not meeting regularly at this point anymore but um, what it really did was help the watershed council identify future projects and things that we can fundraise around what are some of the needs and you know how can we get this done so i would say you know it's translating into new projects that are heavier on the implementation side of things and then I have another direction that I'd like to take the project in, or what I think is a logical evolution, but that's not launched yet. So if there's any funders listening,
0: oh <laughs> I've no, got this
1: great idea. <laughs>
0: well, we we'll spill it. This is where you should do it and point them to this podcast. What, what do you have in mind?
1: <laughs> well, so what I want to launch next are climate networks. And networks are kind of hard to to fund, I believe, because they are ongoing. You know, we, we, we need some support for this in a, something more than a two- to three-year time frame because uh, what I envision is getting a much larger group together twice a year and keeping climate issues in front of them. So in their day-to-day, they're, they're going about the work as a stormwater manager, or a dam operator, or a fisheries biologist, but they are, their day-to-day tasks don't necessarily have climate in them or regular climate considerations. But if we can get a community of people together on a semi-annual basis and expose them to new science, new tools, and uh, really foster a network of knowledge exchange among them, we can get these hyper-localized solutions and this knowledge exchange that I think would move our geography forward much more quickly uh, and in a a meaningful way than we can do if we attack climate adaptation from a project-to-project basis. We need everybody thinking about climate when they're making decisions, and these networks, I feel, are a good way to achieve that.
0: No, I think that's a great idea and the idea if you met twice a year that you know these projects that do sort of peter out or not funded at, at least if they're sharing in a form that you know you, you try to create some momentum to these things. So no, I think that's a really good idea. So who would be like a, a a person in the network is it just you know NGOs local governments did you have for a broader scale of partners?
1: I think it would be anyone who's interested that feels like the, the information is relevant to them, but it wouldn't be general information that we would be covering there would be very uh sector specific Mm -hmm. such that you know we're getting detailed enough that the information that they're receiving is highly catered to them and their craft so it would have to in that way the groups would be kind of size limited there's only so many practitioners working on a particular issue or angle of of you know managing our urban environments and our natural resources but you know we could reach a lot of southeast michigan doing this and hopefully get a you know a, a core network established that's that's doing a lot of information exchange and advancing adaptation in our place pretty rapidly
0: and all you need is a little seed money to get this going right <laughs> <laughs> i mean if you're listening well, out there th- th- these guys are doing some amazing work in michigan and a little seed money to sort of thread this tapestry together and i'm not making light of this i'm serious I, i think it's a great idea just because people need something to plug into on a regular basis or you lose momentum
1: yeah and let me give you an example of this in action in a way that i think is really working so we already have a dam operators network so we have 17 dams on the main stem of the huron There's 10 different entities that own these dams. They're operated for different purposes, hydropower, recreation. Some of them are just relic dams that have been there and they aren't coming out anytime soon. And historically, they've operated completely independently. Or maybe they have a relationship with the immediate downstream dam in case of an emergency. And otherwise, that's about it. We launched the FLOWS team that I was describing earlier, saw the need that the dam operators needed to be networked. And we launched that network several years ago now. I think we've been meeting for three years. And we have gotten to the point, so that the WCS funding that you mentioned earlier, has allowed us to perpetuate that network into its third and fourth years. And what we're able to get to now is watershed-wide discussions about how to manage flow in the Huron. So we've actually developed a set of recommendations for uh, environmental flow targets for the Huron. So these are maximum flows, minimum flows, rates of change in flows that we believe are important to the success of the natural ecosystem. Absent of dams, we wouldn't be... Dams in general are not so good for a river, but they're here and they're here to stay. How can we work with the dams to manage this resource in a way that that can benefit the, the ecological system there? And these recommendations were brought to the network and they are all in making good faith effort to try to hit those targets and so these are conversations that we couldn't have had without the network the trust we've built over the years and the meeting of the minds that needs to happen for uh, something like this to happen and one of the the way that this is really helping us adapt to climate change is we have um, more extreme rain events in an urban environment so we get these highly flashy flows at times where the the river will rise quite quickly and artificially quickly mm-hmm. in some cases and uh, if that happens at the wrong time of year specifically spawning season we really undermine the reproductive success of our native fish so if the dams can be employed to kind of take the peaks off of those really spiky events uh, such that the, the fish have a better success rate uh, during their spawning season, then we have these healthy, robust fish populations that are going to help us maintain a healthy river even under a changing climate.
0: Well, that's really interesting. This is micro-targeting adaptation actions, and you know, it's what it, it's what it come down to the, the built environment. There's so many things already going on that you have to think like that. You know, as you talked about the dams, you were very diplomatic, but I sensed your inner Kathy Pringle was back there. So, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you
0: were very diplomatic, and that's all we really need to say about that.
1: So. You have to work with what you have.
0: Right. Right. I want to pivot to the Adaptation Fund project. I don't know if you can quickly explain what it is, but I actually had Molly Cross on as a previous podcast guest. I don't know if you listened to that one, but we talked a bit about the Adaptation Fund and what I think is really interesting and unique about that is that it's one of the few groups that's you know really trying to focus on adaptation. So the Adaptation Fund is this great, resource, but I think they still struggle on what adaptation is. And so you guys got one of the their their funding. They're in there and you applied and you got money from them, which is a hard thing to do. I tried it twice when I was in Florida and they rejected me and I, I still hold Darren and Molly responsible for that. <laughs> but you got it. And so you, you must be doing something interesting. And so tell us, you know, briefly a, a little bit about that project.
1: Sure. Yeah. So the 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 premise under which the Wildlife Conservation Society is a, uh, funding adaptation projects is they really want to see projects that, uh, for lack of a better word, embrace climate change rather than fight it. So let's not, you know, spend huge amounts of money restoring ecosystems that are not likely to exist in the future climate in this place. You know, as sad as it is. Um, these are some of the hard decisions that have to be made um, with climate change. And so the spirit of their funding stream is is really how do we shepherd our ecosystems into a new climate future in a way that allows them to still be uh, functioning ecosystems. And so uh, what we put in front of them was a suite of three, really four strategies that we felt like together Created a Huron that could transition to this kind of warmer, wetter future that we're anticipating. Um, one thing we had working to our advantage, I think. So in the Huron, we have a beneficial situation as far as climate change goes, in that we are a, we the river supports um, a cool to warm water fishery. So I feel like there's actually some Malleability in the system. Um, you know, maybe we'll lose some of our cooler water species, but we will have uh, you know, a continued native population of, of uh, species that are that can handle um, some warmer river temperatures, which we anticipate under climate change. So um, it's a system that has a little room to move. And so what we're doing with the, the Wildlife Conservation Society project is we are doing better riparian protection. So of course, the more shade you have over the river, the better your stream temperatures are buffered from increased air temperatures. Uh, You're also getting a lot more infiltration to the groundwater and, and, and we have a significant amount of groundwater contributions in our system. So that's one strategy. The second thing we're doing is the work I already described with the dam operators trying to get them to manage flows in a way that potentially mitigates some of the worst impacts that climate change might bring to our river. And then the third thing is we've been really working to bolster the health of our our native fisheries. And under the, the premise that if you have healthy fish populations, that some episodic, more catastrophic events can be bounced back from. So If you have uh, populations that are limping along and something terrible happens, it's going to take a long time to recover. But if you have healthy fish populations and something happens periodically, they're in a better condition to bounce back from those events. So we've been doing some in-stream habitat restoration in areas where uh, that's been pretty degraded over time.
0: So what was the length of the project? It was uh, Those are usually like three years or something?
1: This was a two-year project. It's wrapping up in the fall.
0: What is the goal to maybe apply for another one, or were you told, like, okay, that's it, you're cut off?
1: That particularly funding source doesn't allow for continuation of existing projects. We've actually put something else in front of WCS, so don't be jealous if I get two for two. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But uh, hopefully I will. <laughs> but for... The, the strategies that we invested in over the last two years as part of the WCS project really have lasting, they have some longevity. So I don't think that they're they're not going to stop once the project money runs out. You know, the, the work we've done with the dam operators will continue. We'll have to fundraise for certain aspects of that. But these guys Kind of have the information they need to, to do this in perpetuity. Um, we've also been able to get some additional flow monitors on the river, which allows them better data to make sure that whatever they do at their dam, they have an understanding of what how that impacts flow below the dam. That's not going to go away. The work with the riparian protections. I mentioned earlier in our interview that we have a Natural Rivers District designation for probably two-thirds of the the length of the main stem of the Huron. And we've got those communities re-engaged in what it means to be a Natural Rivers District community. And they're doubling down their efforts to make sure the Natural Rivers District um, is enforced and understood by uh, private property owners that, that live on the river to make sure that nobody's clearing away their forest for a nice river view (laughs) or, you know, putting a a shed right next to the river or things along those lines. And so the education that we've done with our communities around this Natural Rivers District over the last two years, I feel will also have some lasting impacts that will occur long after the, the project's over.
0: So these projects obviously keep you busy and but they are, you know, limited funding and so your from here on out you're you do have what's keeping you busy basically? I mean, if you're not getting additional funding through these particular grants, I mean, you it's always the struggle to find new grant money, but the next 12 months are you just there's there roles and responsibilities for these existing ones or is there new things you're going to be doing?
1: I'm doing a lot of fundraising right now, Doug. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Gosh, no, that's it,
1: out by going. It, um, you know, it it has the funding environment right now for adaptation. What I'm experiencing is that unless you're a coastal community experiencing sea level rise, or a highly urban environment with vulnerable communities, you're not that competitive for the adaptation funding that's out there right now. And you know, we're, we're neither of those. Uh, We have some areas with vulnerable communities. We're definitely getting into that area of adaptation work uh, because it's important and because these are places that are going to be disproportionately impacted as climate changes. But it doesn't define our whole watershed. And so looking for opportunities that match our setting has been a little bit challenging. And what's unfortunate about that is we all need to adapt. I, I, I realize that We have to prioritize this stuff because we can't do everything everywhere at the same time. But there's not a spot on the map that doesn't have to think about this and take actions to prepare themselves. And there's a lot of gaps in the funding that would allow that.
0: Well, how I see it, too, is independent of the, I guess, science validity of the sort of projects you want to do, that you're engaging people on the issue of climate change adaptation, and that in itself is sort of a great Benefit, And so, yeah, it's just I mean, I'm a coastal guy. I'm from Florida. But, uh, you know, these inland communities that just there's other values associated with what, what you're doing on top of the immediate sort of adaptation quality.
1: Well, and so you're hitting on something that I've come to over the course of my time thinking about adaptation how to get it done, how to fundraise for it. What I'm doing now more than I did initially is I'm making sure all of the projects that the Watershed Council is seeking funding for have a climate element to them Mm -hmm. because everything we do, to some degree, could benefit from considering climate change a future climate. And so there's some real easy logical fits between some of the project areas that we have currently and bringing uh, climate change and adaptation into those projects. So we've been uh, discussing ways to create you know our full suite of programming and being climate informed and having you know asking the questions necessary of these projects that make sure that they are not taking place in the absence of that climate information that may, change priorities or geographies or decisions that we make.
0: Well, you are just, uh, you're at the front end of this thing. I think 10 years from now, it's going to be a different conversation. Hopefully there'll be a lot more funding. Knock on wood. (laughs) I, I would think groups, I mean, it's not my area, but groups like EPA that do a lot of watershed work that, you know, they're starting to do a lot more adaptation planning, but I guess it's just not filtering out as much as it should to communities like yours.
1: Yeah, and, and are you speaking of their funding streams or just
0: well, they don't they they literally have a million grant programs and I know a lot of them are tied to like okay water quality or I mean all these different things where there's specific technical things that they have to do but they do get involved with you know they support watershed groups I remember my time in Georgia where you know EPA played a role with that and I'm just curious why your Your work is, you would think, aligned perfectly with this new emphasis with the federal government on adaptation planning. And why is an EPA like a more consistent source of funding for you?
1: They're just highly competitive. You know, they get a huge number of applications. And for any particular competition, only fund, you know, a dozen. And so we've definitely thrown our hat in that ring. And so far it hasn't come to fruition, but we'll continue to, to look to... Uh, federal sources of funding for our work here as well.
0: Well, I would encourage you that even though we, we go to these national adaptation forums, and we think everyone's doing adaptation, but in reality, no one's doing it. And you and your organization <laughs> should not be afraid to brag. And it sounds like that's sort of what you're doing with some of these other projects. But I mean, getting out there and hyping your work, and then all of a sudden, you're known in the business. And if that, you know, I, I don't want suggest doing anything crass or anything like that, but you you know what I'm talking about. A lot of times it's just, there's sort of a momentum built into people's awareness of what you're doing. And so whatever you can do to highlight these specific things that you're doing and doing it in a way that people care about, I, I just think that that just builds into the ability to like people know you and you, even when people are applying for grants and such, that, that factors in. So don't be shy about, <laughs> and, and I'm probably telling you something you're like, oh, well, we already do this. I mean, just you know it, it's you, you guys it's there i kind of think of adaptation planning If done the right way it's like this it's this fast mustang and i don't think people realize it yet it's like something to show off and we're, partly you know the point of this podcast is to highlight what's going on with adaptation and as a field i don't think we're comfortable yet to really kind of bragging about it well, so <laughs> I, I
1: will I will make note but I in you know and I I would add that I definitely feel like some of the things we've learned over the course of the four years that we've been at this is broadly applicable. You know there's there's some truths coming out of this I think that makes sense in in more places than ours. Um we have a pretty close working relationship with the Great Lakes RISA. They were the group that provided the climate scientists and some of the funding to the Climate Resilient Communities Project I introduced you to. And they're doing similar work in a bunch of other different Great Lakes uh, cities and towns. And there's definitely some truths coming out of of that work about how to move the needle forward on um, implementing adaptation in these places that it makes me feel like we should get those cities together and, and come up with those truths and write them down. Maybe somebody's already on that. I'll have to
0: check. <laughs> well, probably not. And when you write things down, too, think about what you're writing down. You know, you, when you deal with scientists, they write something down and they get it in some policy journal and they think it's going to change the world. And that's not how people are absorbing information these days. And so, non traditional ways of like, you get it down, you get something that you've written in, but how you get that information out is just as important of what you put on it. So I, I, I'm probably lecturing you, but it's just, it's <laughs> as, you know, as we read stuff and especially science, it's just like, Oh my gosh, we're preaching to the choir. How do you break through this orbit? So, yeah,
1: uh, no, that the whole uh, peer reviewed publication world is something I've stepped away from intentionally because of the time it takes to get anything to press and the limitations of the audience and, and what they're looking for. So it's not the, the way to communicate this stuff, but I would would also agree further with something you said, which even writing things down, I mean, we've put this project on CAKE, yeah. The Climate Adaptation Knowledge Exchange website. Right. I can count on one hand how many times I've actually gone to that site and consumed information. And, you know, maybe that's just the way I work and not everybody works that way. But what I latch on to when I'm looking to advance my thinking on this stuff is presentations or networking lunches or you know this face-to-face verbal exchange that allows you to say oh yeah you know i had that experience too or oh we had something totally different or this is how we solved that problem and it's in that back and forth where magic happens and consuming the written word really uh, only gets me so far
0: I'm assuming you, you meant podcasts are also a great way to get this information out too, right? You were sort of, I can read between the lines in that statement you just made. So thank you. Appreciate that.
1: Well, Doug, this is my first (laughs) podcast. So the proof's in the pudding. We'll see. Um, I, I,
0: I I highly um, encourage you that use the podcast. It's going to be permanently up there to, you know, share what you're doing and what you're up to. So, I'll follow up with that. But, you know, we knew, we do need to wrap this up. I know I've taken enough of your time. But on top of that, I want to give my guest each time I give the guest the last, you know, last word. Is there any sort of message you want to leave listeners about what you're doing or just sort of, you know, sometimes it's sort of a cheerleading call. But, uh, yeah, just what any final thoughts?
1: Boy. <laughs> <Finally>. <laughs> it it feels, doesn't have to be that
0: profound. It feels like,
1: weighty, Doug. It feels weighty.
0: Just say good, good riddance. I mean, anything you want.
1: Yeah, you know, just an insight I would I would share is that so much of this work is hyper-local. When you're doing adaptation with specific communities and geographic settings and politics and characters, and yet, I think there's so much to be gained by talking with. Neighbors or other adaptation professionals or practitioners that are grappling with similar issues and some truths that can be gleaned from those conversations. And so um, the type of support that's out there for those types of exchanges, I think, is going to be really valuable for the field. And I fully plan to, to participate in, in this very local level action and then lifting my head up and communicating with others to, to move this ship forward as fast as it needs to, given the imminent threats that we are facing.
0: Great message. Thank you. And that's part of the reason I had you on is I've, I've had a lot of more national level type adaptation people. And I've learned a lot about your, your local approach to adaptation. That's where it's all going to happen. I totally agree. Thanks again for, for joining me today, Rebecca, and I hope you have a great week.
1: Likewise, Doug. Look forward to catching up with you again soon.
0: And thanks, everyone. Again, this is America Dapps, the Climate Change Podcast. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for joining us on America Dapps, the Climate Change Podcast. Special thanks to Rebecca Esselman. Really enjoyed my conversation with her. So don't forget, please consider subscribing to the show on iTunes. Just look, go to iTunes and look up America DAPS and hit subscribe. And if you're feeling really ambitious, I would greatly appreciate if you wrote a review. Also consider following the show on Facebook at AmericaDapps. And if you have ideas for potential guests to the show or just comments. go to the website at americadaps.org or send me an email at, yes, you guessed it, americadaps at gmail.com. Next week, we have Tristan Cordham from Florida, and we're going to talk about Florida banning climate change, the big climate change story from 2015. So please join us next week for that episode. And again, thank you for joining us. Have a great day.